So this morning we're going to be continuing into our study of First Samuel. And today we're just going to be in chapter 20. And I've titled today's message, Because He Loved Me. And as we go through this message, or this today's passage, and this message, you'll be seeing exactly why. Now, a lot has happened uh, previous to this point. But now two familiar themes will now converge in this chapter. The first is the friendship of Jonathan and David. Now, we've already seen that Jonathan loved David and that he had dramatically ceded his claim to power over to David and that he sided with David against his father and against his own self-interest. Well, here now in chapter 20, it becomes clear that the love of Jonathan and David has political implications for the future as well as dimensions of personal intimacy. Now, again, as I mentioned previously, we have to dis- separate what today's definition of love, friendship, intimacy means well, what it means today than what it meant at this time. You know, today uh, society has over-sexualized intimacy and friendship, a bond that two males can have, that two females can have with one another. I absolutely believe that and feel in my heart that really two men can can have a deep, sincere loving friendship with one another without it crossing the line into a sexual intimacy. Um, again, that's, that is reserved you know, for marriage between one man and one woman. But, um, but I've heard so many things about the kind of friendship that David and Jonathan had, and a lot of them you know, are completely wrong, you know, borderline blasphemous, um, they again, you know, think of the, the definition that society has today for the love that is described here and over-sexualize it. Well, again, I, I won't get all into that again, but again, we have to keep that in mind. Um, the second theme concerns David' legitimate fear of Saul's madness and his flight for his life. So throughout this chapter, throughout chapter 20, David's posture is consistently and necessarily one of flight, one of trying to get away from the mad king, the angry king. And you have to remember again that he did, David he tried to kill David, David several times for no apparent, no reason at all, just because he was jealous and angry at him, because he had become popular, because his family, because Saul's family began to love him, um, and he just didn't like it. And he also was aware, he started to become aware that God was with David. God had left Saul and was now with David. So, and, you know, we're also told that a uh, demon was sent, evil spirit was sent to, to torment him. The two themes of Jonathan's love for David and David's fear of Saul both witness to the hidden resolve of God that Saul should decrease and David should increase. Now, I will also be sharing with you how the covenant, that covenant of friendship between David and Jonathan is the basis and guiding principle of the relationship between these two men and how it applies to our relationship with others, with our relationship with one another as a church, and more importantly, with God. So before, like we normally do, before we get into God's word, let's pray and ask him to speak to us through his word and through this message today. Lord, thank you um, 
it has been a busy and eventful week for many of us, Lord, and um, some of us have uh, maybe experienced a lot of uh, difficulties and challenges, Lord. But um, we know that through it all, you're, you've been there, you are there, and that you will continue to be there to guide us through these obstacles, these challenges, Lord. Um, I pray that you will bless those that are here, that those those who are um, watching and listening to this message, that uh, whether it's uh, a line or a verse or the entire passage, that you will speak to them individually, Lord, and that you will speak to us as a church as well, Lord. We want to hear from you. We want to know you more intimately. We want to grow as your children, as followers of your Son, Jesus Christ. So now I ask, Lord, that you will remove all distractions, Lord, that we will focus now completely on you and what you have to say to us. Can thank you that you brought everyone here safely, Lord, and and that you are here with us now, Lord. So fill this room with your spirit. Fill us with your love. And bless those, Lord, that are watching this and or hearing this online, Lord. Bless this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 1 Samuel chapter 20. And the word of God says, David fled from Nayath in Ramah and came to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What did I do wrong? How have I sinned against your father so that he wants to take my life? Jonathan said to him, No, you won't die. Listen, my father doesn't do anything great or small without telling me. So why would he hide this matter from me? This can't be true. But David said, Your father certainly knows that I have found favor with you. He has said, Jonathan must not know of this or else he will be grieved. David also swore, as surely as the Lord lives and as you yourself lived, there is but a step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. So David told them, look, tomorrow is a new moon. You're supposed to sit down and eat with the king. Instead, let me go and I'll hide in the countryside for the next two nights. If your father misses me at all, say, David urgently requested my permission to go quickly to, the, to his hometown, Bethlehem, for an annual sacrifice there involving his whole clan. If he says, good, then your servant is safe. But if he becomes angry, you will know his evil intentions. Deal kindly with your servant. For you have brought me into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I have done anything wrong, then kill me yourself. Why take me to your father? No, Jonathan responded. If I ever find out my father has evil intentions against you, wouldn't I tell you about it? So David asked Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? He answered David, Come on, let's go, to, let's go out to the countryside. So both of them went out to the countryside. By the Lord, the God of Israel, I will sound out to my father by this time tomorrow or the next day. If I find out that he is favorable towards you, I will not send for you. I will, I will, will I not send for you and tell you? If my father intends to bring evil on you, may God punish Jonathan and do so severely if, we, if I do not tell you. And send you away so that you may leave safely. May the Lord be with you just as he has with he was with my father. That's key there. He was with my father. If I continue to live, show me kindness from the Lord. But if I die, don't ever withdraw your kindness from my household. Not even when the Lord cuts off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. Then Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord hold David's enemies accountable. Jonathan once again swore to David in his, in his love for him, because he loved him as he loved himself. 
Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon. You'll be missed because your seat will be empty. The following day, hurry down and go to the place where you hid on the day this incident began and stay behind the rock Ezel. I will shoot three arrows beside it as if I'm aiming at a target. Then I will servant and say, go and find the arrows. Now, if I expressly say to the servant, look, the arrows are on this side of you, get them. Then come because as the Lord lives, it is safe for you and there is no problem. But if I say to the, to the youth, look, the arrows, arrows are beyond you. Then go, for the Lord is sending you away. As for the matter you and I have spoken about, the Lord will be a witness between you and me forever. So David hid in the countryside. At the new moon, the king sat down to eat the meal. He sat as usual at his usual place on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat facing him, and Abner took his place beside Saul. But David's place was empty. Saul did not say anything that day because he thought something unexpected has happened. He must be ceremonially unclean. Yes, that's it. He is unclean. However, the day after the new moon, the second day, David's place was still empty. And Saul asked his son, Jonathan, why didn't Jesse's son come to the meal, to the meal either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered, David asked for my permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, please let me go because our clan is holding a sacrifice in the town. And my brothers, my brother has told me to be there. So now if I have found favor with you, let me go so I can see my brothers. That's why he didn't come to the king's table. Then Saul became angry with Jonathan and shouted, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Don't I know that you are siding with Jesse's son to your own shame and to the disgrace of your mother? Every day Jesse's son lives on earth. You and your kingship are not secure. Now send for him and bring him to me. He must die. Jonathan answered his father back. Why is he to be killed? What has he done? Then Samuel threw his spear at Jonathan to kill him. So he knew that his father was determined to kill David. He got, up from the ter- he got up from the table, fiercely angry, and did not eat any food that second day of the new moon, for he was grieved because of his father's shameful behavior toward David. In the morning, Jonathan went out to the countryside for the appointed meeting with David. A young servant was with him. He said to the servant, run and find the arrows I'm shooting. As the servant ran, Jonathan shot an arrow beyond him. He came to the location of the arrow that Jonathan had shot. But Jonathan called out to him. He said, the arrow is beyond you, isn't it? Then Jonathan called to him, hurry up and don't stop. Jonathan's servant picked up the arrow and returned it and returned to his master. He didn't know anything, only that Jonathan, only Jonathan and David knew the arrangement. Then Jonathan gave his equipment to his servant who was with him and said, go, take it back to the city. When the servant had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone of Ezel, fell face down to the ground and paid homage three times. Then he and Jonathan kissed each other and wept with each other, though David wept more. Jonathan then said to David, go in the assurance the two of us pledged in the name of the Lord, when we said, the Lord will be a witness between you and me and between my offspring and your offspring forever. Then David left and Jonathan went to the city, into the city. Now, when it became obvious to David in chapter 19 that Saul had ill intentions toward him, Verses 18 through 24 of chapter 19 says that the first person that he ran to was Samuel. Here, though, that we now see that he runs to Jonathan in order to make another attempt at 
reconciliation. Even though he wasn't the one that did anything wrong, he made the attempt at reconciliation with Saul. If you recall, early in chapter 19, Jonathan showed a willingness to act as a mediator between David and Saul. At that time, not only was he successful at convincing his father not to kill David, but he was also able to bring David back to Saul, back into to serve Saul in his uh, palace or whatnot, in his in his home, just as he had done before. Now, for a while, everything seemed to be going well. Everything seemed to be going normal, and things, you know, David was back to his routines. It seemed like everything had been swept under the rug. That is, until Saul's jealous rage and anger reappeared again, and he tried several times again to kill David. He had reneged on his oath, on his oath that he had given to Jonathan back there in, in that previous chapter that he wouldn't kill David. Well, here now he's, David is on the run, and now he finds himself seeking the help of his beloved friend, friend that he cared about and loved and that he, again, shared a covenant friendship in order to determine if there might be another chance to patch things up with Saul. This time, however, it seems as though Jonathan is completely unaware of his father's continued attempts at David's life. He is out of the loop. He doesn't, he kind of doubts David's claims and is like, man, I thought we fixed this. I thought we, everything was okay. He's not aware. He's completely blind to that fact. See, Jonathan mistakenly thought that his own relationship with his father was closer than what he really, than what it really was, and that his father would confide in him. Now, this is a, a mistake that a lot of fathers make that I've often made, thinking that me and my kids have a close friendship and or a, a tight connection that we're able to, they're able to confide in me, but. A lot of times I've found out that that wasn't the case. You know, and, and yeah, it's upsetting, it's hurtful. But, um, you know, again, we're just giving our children daily reminders that they can confide. And, and, and you know, if you're a young man, a young woman that's out there watching, listening, that's here, I know it's difficult that... If there's anybody you can confide in, yeah, you have your friends, you have your homies, you have your homegirls, whatever, your, your friends um, that you can confide in and share things with, but there are certain things that you can come to your father about, your earthly father. And if he is a good father, he will hear you out. He will offer his advice, his wisdom, his own maybe experiences. But always keep in mind that it's for your own good. It's, you know, he's not saying it to, to make things more difficult, but to hopefully, you know, teach you something, make your life a little better, a little easier. So you can avoid a lot of the mistakes that he made at your age. So confide in him. Confide in your father. If you guys want to have that connection, you know, again, it, it, takes, it takes both of you, father and son. To, and I would say the same thing about daughters. You know, um, you know I I know that as fathers, you know, it's sometimes difficult if you don't have any, or if you don't have any girls, or or if you just have one girl or whatnot, you know, to, to have that connection. Um, but um, it, it can be done. Um, that trust has got to be built up, has to be developed, and 
they got to be able to feel comfortable coming to you, talking to you. So again, he thought, Jonathan here thought that, oh, he, he can talk to me. He'll let me know. You know, everything he does, whether big or small, you know, I know about it. You know, but he underestimated his father. And again, he would eventually find out in the long run or eventually throughout this, by the end of this chapter that, or middle of this chapter, that he, Jonathan, was completely wrong. His father never told him about his true intentions of what he wanted to do with David. Upon hearing this, David explains that, tells him that, yeah, the king isn't going to tell you. He's not going to tell you what he wants to do. He knows that we have a, a bond, a friendship, a connection, and he doesn't want you to be hurt about what he's going to do. So that's why he hasn't told you. You know, he never told him about, Saul never told Jonathan about his intentions because he knew of the friendship that it existed between the two of them. And furthermore, also David could no longer put his faith really in anything Saul told Jonathan because I had, just as I had mentioned earlier, he, he had already broken his oath that he mentioned, that he gave to Jonathan back in chapter 19, verse 6, that he wouldn't kill David. And that was an oath. That was an oath for the Lord. So yes, in a sense, he felt both figuratively and metaphorically, literally, I'm sorry, literally and metaphorically, that there was but a step between himself and death. So in order to settle the matter and convince Jonathan that his assessment of Saul's intentions were justified, David proposed a test. The test would be Saul's response to David's absence from the new moon festival or the new moon feast held on the first day of every month according to Numbers chapter 28. If Saul became upset about David's absence, then David would know that there was no hope in patching things up or reconciling their differences. If, however, it didn't bother the king and he was okay with it and he understood the situation, then all was not lost. Verses 18 through 23 go on to tell us that Jonathan would approach his father on the matter and communicate the results to David by signaling with arrows. So on the first night of the feast, Saul said nothing about David's absence, reasoning to himself that he was probably ceremonially unclean. But on the second day, when he inquired, when he quizzed Jonathan about David's whereabouts. Where is David? He's supposed to be here. You know, he's, I'm, he's supposed to be my, you know, one of my, the, peop, the first people I see. Where is Jonathan? He found out that he had gone to Bethlehem. Well, Jonathan told him that he had gone to Bethlehem. And when he told him that, Saul completely lost it. Again, he one of his manic rages. He accused Jonathan of befriending the man who would rob him and his mother of honor and was a threat to his rightful place as the future king of Israel. See, at that time, again, it was Jonathan was the one who would was being groomed to succeed Saul. Now, here's something interesting I found out several years, you know, a long time ago, about verse 30, that in some translation, the actual words he used there in verse 30 
were actually vulgar words. You know, son of a, you know, I mean, it says here, but, you know, it was, you know, some translation, translations actually use that word. So it, he was pretty, really angry, really mad. He was in a rage. It's vulgar. Um, but what was even more shocking was that Saul, in his anger, tried to pin his own son to the wall with his own spear. His anger had turned from David to Jonathan. And had he not missed, that would have had some serious implications for a bunch of things. You know, he wasn't thinking right. He in his rage and, and we know that when how many of us have been in a in a rage that we have thought clearly about our actions? I know I've made that mistake, and man, I've had to pay suffer the consequences for that. Well, here, had he done that, it definitely would have wouldn't have been good overall. Um, now, from verses 35 to the end of the chapter, we're informed that on the morning of the Third day, the appropriate sign was given, and David's fears were confirmed. The men wept in each other's arms, and they must now separate themselves. They must now take several, or they must now travel separate paths. No longer would they be able to would he be able to enjoy one another's companionship? David went into hiding, a necessary part of God's plan to prepare him for the throne. And for the next several chapters, that's what we're going to be covering, um, how it went for him during that time of hiding. And Jonathan went back to the royal court, remaining loyal to his father, yet knowing deep down inside that he would never be Israel's next king. After this scene, David and Jonathan will only see each other one other occasion, and one other occasion, which we'll read about when we get to chapter 23. Now, among all the chapters we've covered so far, this is truly one of the saddest ones. This is truly one of the saddest in the lives of Saul, Jonathan, and David. How so? Well, by now, it's abundantly clear that Saul was intent on killing David and that he'll even kill his own son if it gets... If he if 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 uh, he gets in the way of Saul's attempts, this chapter is also a significant turning point in the relationship between David and Jonathan, Jonathan and his father, and between David and Saul. When we look at the deep bond between David and Jonathan. They stand out as examples of what loyalty and devotion looks like. This becomes abundantly clear when they come to the realization that they will have to go their separate ways and may never see each other again. When it comes to Jonathan and his father, we can clearly see that he sincerely wanted to be loyal to his father and also to the person he knew would be the next king of Israel. But the reality was that this was impossible. This was a conflict of interest, a conflict of loyalties. And what that did was that it put him at a crossroads. He either was going to choose to be loyal to his family, to his father, or he was going to be loyal 
to, to David. For those who stand by the notion, and I get it, I understand, I feel this in a sense the same way, but those who stand by the notion that family comes first above and beyond anything and everyone else, you can probably imagine that choosing David over his family was one of the most painful decisions he ever had to make. Put yourself in Jonathan's feet or in Jonathan's shoes or sandals. You know, if you're the kind of person who's been taught, has been teaching your children or in your family, the family always comes first. Blood is thicker than water. That nothing at all should ever get in the way between you and you and the family. I get it. I understand. It's it is. It's 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 important that we do that. But you can see the struggle, the problem, the issue that Jonathan now was in. How hard it was for him to make that decision to turn his back to not turn, well yeah turn his back against his father and not be loyal to him and decide to be loyal to David but he felt good about that he knew he because he loved him he loved him as he loved himself he was okay with that he understood he was just as difficult as it was it was the person he genuinely loved and he knew that he would have his back regardless of the situation and and David will always have his back. This was also a sad turning point for David and Saul because from now on they would be in conflict with one another and they'd never have an opportunity to reconcile with one another. And so this must have really broken David's heart since he had a deep level of love, respect, and loyalty to the first king of Israel with whom he fought many battles with. Again, remember, he was his armor bearer. He was there when you know, he fought many battles for Saul. He killed, you know, the Philistine giant Goliath, and Saul rewarded him. I mean, they had a lot of history. They spent a lot. Of, he played music and sang for Saul when he was, when Saul was at his deepest hole when he was hurting and upset and angry and he would minister to Saul. They had that connection as well. He loved Saul. They had a special relationship. They had a special bond as well. And he faithfully served them. He faithfully served. Even after he had tried to kill him, he still loved him because, and well, we see that because he continued to serve him. Yet in all this, even in all this sadness and all the tragedy here, there are some bright spots in this gloomy chapter and some very important lessons that we as Christians today can learn from these inspired words. See, the covenant between David and Jonathan is the basis and the guiding principle of the relationship between these two men. And it gives a sense of security and, ex and expresses both, both men's submission and servanthood to each other. Now I know that this was I, I, you know, this is a story about David and Jonathan and and the bond between them. And I will be using 
you know, uh, examples of, of, of males and all that. But again, the, this also applies to, to females as well. The bond, the friendship, the love that can, the two women can have with one another. And again, the covenant of friendship that, that they can have and ought to be the basis and guiding principle in their relationship. Now, this is uh, such an important matter that I want to spend the rest of our time together covering, uh, covering it just a little bit more in depth. What I'm going to do is first I'm going to share with you how this covenant bears upon our relationship with others. And then I'm going to conclude by exploring the way in which a covenant governs our relationship with God. So let me share with you how a covenant, a covenant governs our relationship with others. Now here in the United States, we live in a country that is governed on the basis of a covenant, of a covenant which men made with one another. The Declaration of Independence was penned in part because of the people, because the people of this nation felt England had broken their covenant with those they governed. Our Constitution is a kind of government, a covenant, which binds us together as a nation, whether written or oral, implied or stated. Government is based upon a covenant made by men. Well, I believe marriage is one of the most important covenants a man can make with a woman. If you're not married, again, you're watching, listening, pay attention here. This is wisdom. And any married person that's been divorced, maybe, um, you know, also in order to avoid that happening again, uh, listen closely. Again, marriage is one of the most important covenants a man can make with, with a woman. When you ask a couple that who are living together why they just don't get married, Typical response is this. Well, we love each other. We don't need a piece of paper to keep us together, to prove that we're committed to one another, to prove that we are married. We, in our hearts and our minds, we are, even though we just, we're living together. Well, our text here makes it very clear that a covenant is the outgrowth of love and in an expression of love. David and Jonathan made a covenant with each other because they loved each other. For them, it would have been inconceivable, inconceivable, not to enter into a covenant that they were willing to, to commit to for the rest of their lives. See, a covenant is a proof of love. A covenant is a mutually agreed upon definition of how love will be reflected in a relationship. And I think it's also safe to say that a covenant relationship grows. As Saul's jealousy of David becomes apparent, both David and Jonathan modify or clarify their covenant to take these new circumstances into account. But their commitments to each other don't diminish because hard times had come upon their relationship. Hard times prompt, prompted these two men to further commit themselves to each other. 
And so the same thing applies within a marriage to marriage vows. When a man and a woman, again, let me repeat that, when a man and a woman come together to become a husband and wife, they express vows which are really the definition of a covenant that's being made. This covenant is not to be broken. This covenant is the foundation and mainstay when troubles come, even when love seems to be lacking. A covenant gives stability to a marriage that romantic feelings cannot provide. See, feelings, ladies and gentlemen, are fickle. Feelings come and go depending on the situation, depending on the circumstance, depending how you wake up, how you go to bed, how work was. They're fickle. They come and they go. One minute, you're completely madly in love with your wife and husband, and five minutes later, you can't stand to look at them. And those of us married, we know what we're talking about. But see that covenant. Because of that covenant, because of those vows, it's that love will always be stable. That love will always be there. That, that bond will always be there regardless of the feelings. Even when you can't stand the person, you still love the person. Because you've made a commitment to them, and because you've made a commitment to God. And even though at times it's hard to love, maybe it may be hard to love that person. You, know, you ask God to give you that love, and you always remember that's the person that God gave you to be with for the rest of your life, until death do you part. Not separate or divorce because of irreconcilable differences, because you can't come up with, agree on how to balance a budget, because you can't agree on what TV shows are the best, because you have differences in political views. I would even take it a step further and say, even though you may have differences of, you, you, you guys come from different religious backgrounds. No, God put that person, that husband, that wife there to love, to take care of, to watch over, to protect. And yeah, there are times you're not going to feel good. You're not going to have positive feelings towards them. But when you remember that this is the person that God gave you, you understand that you know it's it's bigger than just how you feel. It's bigger than that. Again, I know, I know the difficulties, you know, especially when that the challenges, especially when that covenant is broken. It's hard that trust when that trust is broken. You know, it's it's happened to a lot of in a lot of marriages. But let me tell you, healing can come, reconciliation can come, but only by the power of God, but by only the by the love of God. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of work, but if you're committed to that. And the other person is committed to that. And your focus always remains on the Lord and not on anything else, not on what anybody says, but just on what the Lord says, what the Lord wants for both of you. Then yes, that healing can occur. 
and reconciliation can happen. For some, it's, it'll be quick. For some, it takes years and years. But again, if you're willing to do the work, both of you willing to do the work equally, then it'll, I really believe it'll work. It's, it'll work out. God will be there and heal that marriage. For all believers in Jesus Christ, there's not only a covenant between the individual believer and Christ, but also a covenant relationship between all believers. We become a covenant community bound together by a covenant. Notice here, I'm going to read to you from Malachi, but notice how the prophet Malachi rebukes the Israelites of old for failing to keep their covenants. In Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, he writes this, Don't all of us have one father? Didn't one God create us? Why then do we act treacherously against one another, profaning the covenant of our ancestors? Judah has acted treacherously, and detestable, and a detestable act has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's sanctuary, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off the tents of Jacob, the man cut cut off from the tents of Jacob, the man who does this, whoever he may be, even if he presents an offering to the Lord of armies. This is another thing you do. You are covering the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer respects your offerings or receives them gladly from your hands. And you ask, why? Because even though the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, you have acted treacherously against her. She was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. Didn't God make them one and give them a portion of spirit? What is the one seeking godly offspring? So watch yourselves carefully so that no one acts treacherously against the wife of his youth. If he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice, says the Lord of armies. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously. And this now leads me to how a covenant governs our relationship with God. Now, what I've said earlier about covenants, covenants governing the relationship men have with one another is the outgrowth of higher truth. And that's this. God governs man's relationship with him by means of a covenant. When God destroyed all mankind because of their sin, he established a covenant with Noah and his descendants. When God entered into a relationship with Abram, soon to become Abraham, he did, he did so by means of a covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. And there you can read about that in Genesis chapter 12. When God delivered the nation Israel from the bondage of Egypt, he entered into a new relationship with them. And this relationship was governed by the Mosaic covenant. God's actions toward Israel in the New Testament can be seen as the outwork, outworking of this covenant. God acted in accordance with his covenant. All of God's dealings with men can be seen as the outworking of his covenant with them. But while God has always held, has always kept his covenant commitments, time and time and time again, man has 
consistently demonstrated that he is a covenant breaker. If our salvation depended upon our keeping of God's covenant, we'd never be forgiven of our sins and enter into the kingdom of God. God knew that while man promised to keep his Mosaic covenant, he knew that they would never do it. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses verse 28 and 29, The Lord heard your words when you spoke to me. He said to me, I have heard the words that these people have spoken to you. Everything they have said is right. If only they had such a heart to fear me and keep all my commands always so that they and their children would prosper forever. Now later on in Israel's history, when Joshua spoke his parting words to the Israelites, they once again promised to keep the Mosaic covenant. But Joshua knew better. In Joshua chapter 24, verses 19 through 25, he said this to the people, You will not be able to worship the Lord because He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions and sins. If you you abandon the Lord and worship foreign gods, He will turn against you, harm you, and completely destroy you. After he has been good to you, after he has been good to you. No, the people answered Joshua, we will worship the Lord. Joshua then told the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you yourselves had chosen to worship the Lord. We are witnesses, they said. Then get rid of the foreign gods that are among you and turn your hearts to the Lord, to the Lord, the God of Israel. So the people said to Joshua, We will worship the Lord our God and obey Him. On that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people at Shechem and established a statute and ordinance for them. Ladies and gentlemen, there's only, there was only one solution. There must be a salvation which didn't depend upon man's, uh, man's perfection and performance. It was now, it's absolutely clear that we are covenant breakers. We break our oaths, we break our covenants. And so there had to be a salvation that didn't depend upon being perfect and upon our performance. There must be a salvation which depended upon God's perfection and performance. And so it was in the Old Testament that God began to speak of a new covenant, of a new covenant He would make with men which would result in eternal salvation. In Jeremiah Chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, we're told, Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, this one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. My covenant, that my covenant as they broke, even though I am their master, the Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration. 
for I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. This new covenant was brought about by the promised Messiah, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to be sharing with you a few other verses that show this. Luke chapter 22, verses 19 through 19 and 20 says this, And he, speaking of Jesus, took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them and said, This is my body which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 through 11, Paul writes, Such is the confidence we have through Christ before God. It is not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. He has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry that brought death, chiseled in letters on stones, came with glory so that the Israelites were not able to gaze steadily on Moses' face because of its glory, which was set aside, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry that brought condemnation had glory, the ministry that brings righteousness overflows with even more glory. In fact, what has been glorious is not glorious now by comparison because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what has been set aside was glorious, what endures will be even more glorious. Now, it seems like there's too many glorious there and you didn't quite follow. Again, I, I encourage you, read that passage again. Read it uh, in, in maybe a, in the NIV, the NLT, you know, whatever you know, translation can break it down even more. But this here is an important passage about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant and why the New Covenant is more glorious than the Old and that should bring so much excitement to each and every one of you. How even though that was glorious, we have an even better glory. I mean, this new covenant is doing more glorious. Now let me share with you one more passage from Hebrews chapter 9. But Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkled, those who are defiled sanctify for the purification of the, of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciousness from dead works so that we can serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of the new covenant so that those who are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Because a death that has taken place, because a death has taken place for redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Now that's just part of Hebrews chapter nine, but you know, if you turn back to Hebrews chapter eight, it talks more about that as well. What it all comes down to is this. God has always dealt with men 
in terms of a covenant. In every case, men have failed to keep God's covenant, even even though God has kept His covenant commitments and promises. In order to save men from their sins and give them entrance into His kingdom, God has set aside the old covenants for a new and better one. This covenant isn't dependent upon your performance, but on God's. On what God did, not what you did, but what He did. God, see, God sent His Son. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to live a sinless life, to perfectly fulfill the Mosaic covenant. And then, when He died on the cross on Calvary, He bore the penalty for man's sins. And I, we spoke on that extensively last week on our Easter service. When he rose from the dead, he demonstrated God's satisfaction and his, Christ's, righteousness. So, by Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, God provided men with a new covenant whereby men could be assured, absolutely 100% assured of the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. So, my friends, church, those watching and listening, in order to be saved, You need to only embrace this covenant as your only hope and provision of salvation. This covenant, this better and more glorious covenant has been secured once for all. It cannot be set aside or nullified. It only needs to be embraced by you. It only needs to be embraced on your own. How is that? By acknowledging your inability to please God by your own efforts and by trusting the work Christ has done for you, that Christ has done on your behalf. You enter into this new covenant and all its benefits. So now, as I close here, as I wrap up this message today, let me ask ask you, have you entered into this covenant? Have you, are you living, trying to live through the old covenant, trying to become righteous through your own works? Have you, have you not heard about this new covenant and now want to be a part of it? You now believe that you're a sinner and that you need the forgiveness of sins. And you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. And you believe that he rose on the cross for your justification and to give you eternal life. Well, if you'd like to enter, if you never have and would like to enter in this new covenant, then I urge you to do that today. I urge you to do that now. And if you'd like to do that, then I'm going to lead you in a prayer to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. To put your faith and trust in Him. To allow Him to come and make his home in you. What a great God we have. That he has offered this covenant relationship. That he has offered you this covenant relationship with him. So wherever you're at and you're ready to pray that prayer and you're ready to become born again and and surrender your life to Jesus, 
wherever you're at, I want you to close your eyes, bow your head. And if you'd like, yes, you, you can even kneel if you want to. But with all sincerity, with all your heart, I want you to pray this. Lord Jesus, I know, I realize now, I confess that I'm a sinner. And I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I believe that you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I now repent for my sins and confess you as my personal Lord and Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me for dying on the cross for my sins. Now, I ask you to fill me with the Holy Spirit so that He may help guide me in my new born-again life. In your name, I pray. Amen. If you prayed that, welcome to the family of God. You're now part of of this new covenant. And the next steps will be challenging, but you're not, you won't be alone. So let us know. You prayed that. We want to hear from you. And um, so send us a comment on, on Facebook, YouTube. I hope you've been blessed. I hope that you've enjoyed watching and hearing this message, please, again, share it with others who need to hear it. Um, we want to, you know, minister to as many people as possible. So um, enjoy your day. Be blessed. Hang out with your friends and family. And, and may the Lord use you mightily this upcoming week. Thank you, and goodbye, and be blessed.